Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 20 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview David Bowser, the founder and CEO of Curio, a tech platform and education consulting company. We discuss how he crossed the diverse career pathways of neuroscience, PhD and university academic to IT software developer and then management consulting principal and finally becoming an entrepreneur. How his optimism carried him through a bumpy journey of pivoting business models before finding the right offering and rapidly scaling to nearly 70 staff in under two years, doubling revenue every six months. If you are a corporation or university interested in the art, science and business of learning or a creative, curious and hardworking person looking to contribute to the fastest growing education consultancy in Australia, check out curio.co. That's C-U-R-I-O dot C-O. Okay, I'm here with David Bowser, the founder and CEO of Curio. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. So, can you describe what were you doing before you started Curio? What did you study? What type of companies did you work in and doing what sort of roles? Yeah, absolutely. So, I'll give you the quick potted history and then it'll probably make more sense to how I got to where we are right now in 2019. Um, My background is in biomedical science, so neuroscience particularly. I did uh, first year of medicine back in the early 90s, decided I didn't really like working with sick people after around about a year, moved into biomedical sciences and then straight into a PhD. Uh, My PhD is all in neuroscience and understanding the basically the biological basis of a of diseases like epilepsy schizophrenia multiple sclerosis things like that i then went off to cambridge university as an academic worked there for around about four years before coming back to australia again as an academic um, and trying my hand at all sorts of weird and wonderful things back here in academia at melbourne university but decided early on that it probably wasn't the career that i wanted And that was partly because I liked trying different things out. So I've always been fairly curious, quite creative. I love learning. And that's really who I am in that respect. And so consequently, as much as I describe it as, you know, a journey through to a PhD in biomed and then an academic career, and then I jumping into management consulting, I've done so many different things during that particular period of time that it means that, I've got a very, very broad discipline interest level. So in terms of what did I study, I have a Bachelor of Biomedical Sciences with honours. I have a PhD in neuroscience. I have 
an MBA from Melbourne Business School. Um, I started but never finished a master's in IT as well um, at RMIT. So I love learning. I love doing degrees and that sort of stuff. When I started Curio about two and a half years ago, officially, I'd been working in management consulting at a firm called Nouse Group. Uh, where I was a principal there and sector leader for education. So I looked after most of the work that they did in universities in particular. I noticed that during that time that universities were struggling with a whole bunch of different things, but in particular, how do they actually build platforms that mean that they can scale themselves and also get efficiencies in what they do and what they operate. And if you know much about universities and operations, you'll know that they are largely staffed with casual academic staff. And around about 70 to 80% of teaching is delivered by casual staff in universities. So that's all like the first year tutors in accounting and all of those sorts of areas. And I thought to myself, as I had this sort of half masters in IT, particularly in web programming, that I would start building something that could network them all. A bit like a bespoke LinkedIn, I guess you would call it. And that's our platform sessions. So I started coding it in my spare time until my wife got sick of me and said, (laughs) you can't be working crazy hours in management consulting and also at the same time coding on weekends. So find someone else to do the coding for you, please. And so we borrowed some money, got in web developers ourselves, and built the sessions platform at the moment. So it now has around about 15,000 academics on it um, that use it to find work in universities and universities use it to find staff. And that's effectively what it is at the moment. So that started around about three years ago and I was still in management consulting when uh, RMIT University said, we'd like you to run with this full time if you could and really scale it up potentially. And so I decided that I would leave management consulting. And that's really what started Curio at the time around about two and a half years ago. So we started very much as a platform business that has then gone into teaching delivery, into online learning, into management consulting and education strategy work and pretty much gone from there uh, to the point where now we're around about 55 people at present. Well, it's a really interesting journey. So just to to take it back a bit, so obviously you mentioned really interested in learning, obviously liked university, spent a lot of time at university. Did you consider staying at university and going the academic path, being a professor? Oh, absolutely. I went all the way. So I was an associate professor when I left Melbourne Uni. So I had had almost probably 15 years in academia and science when I decided that I wanted to do something different. So it wasn't that I absolutely hated the career. I didn't hate universities either. I actually quite liked them a lot. That's why I still work with most of them. But I just wanted to try something different. Yeah. And that's when you first went to management consulting or are you doing a bit of consulting on the side? I've been doing some then? consulting on the side for years. Yeah, during my PhD as well. So I've done little bits and pieces. I started probably my first company, BioWeb Designs, back in about 2000 before mm-hmm. the whole dot-com bubble. Just doing web design work and web programming. Did a little bit for the Austereo network and things like that because my brother was in radio. Mm-hmm. So did a little bits and pieces like that. So I've always tried and played with things, I guess is the main thing for me. Yeah, and, and, and was there an underlying driving interest across these fields? Obviously, getting very mm-hmm. deep into the technical sciences, neuroscience, but then also doing business, also doing IT. Was, was it the business side of all these things, like the marketing and, and human behavior? Or what, what was the underlying thing that tied all these interests together? Purely curiosity. Okay. 
purely curiosity. I know that sounds really <laughs> weird, but it's actually truly me. I love learning about new stuff and trying out new things. So that's why I'm very, very probably, well, let's call it the, the master of no trade whatsoever. <laughs> but I am a jack of many. So I can play in all sorts of different spaces as a result. Mm. Probably the only area I don't really have a really strong background in is social sciences. Mm. So, 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 yeah, you've tied together these different fields, I guess, in your current work where you're working with universities, solving problems for universities, yep. um, designing a lot around, I imagine, human behaviour and sort of neuroscience. Yep. And how it's people tech, learn. there's IT, yeah, how people learn, and then yep. you're running a business. So, yep. you know, MBAC have managed to string all these fields together in an interesting loop, yep. um, which are often sort of siloed, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a good way of putting it. Yeah. All right. Um, so... Um, you mentioned that you were doing a bit of consulting, but still an academic, and then you saw this opportunity to build a tech platform and sort of go from there. Mm-hmm. Was that your first business? Or, I mean, were you doing other little side businesses and experiments earlier than that? Yeah, I tried a few things out, just all sole trader things, mm-hmm. being by myself. So like I was saying before, I did a few bits of web design for other organizations. I was in student politics for a while as well, so mm-hmm. I worked for the student union at Melbourne Uni for a bit. So I've tried lots of different things, I think you would probably say. Once again, really driven by my curiosity about trying to understand how things work and how different people do different things. So I've always tried out different things. And in fact, I still look for people who have tried out a lot of different things because I find Mm. that they're the more interesting people to work with. Because in reality, creativity and thinking up new solutions to problems comes from people putting together disparate ideas that they're able to almost hold in their minds at the same time, even though they might be in opposing directions. Mm. And that's what we know about how the brain works and around how creativity works. So if you've got that ability to try lots of different things and plug them together, that's usually where the new spark comes from. And so I always look for that. Someone called it the other day, the X factor, which has got Mm -hmm. a pretty bad name because of the television. (laughs) But the reality is that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that special little spark that means that someone's given something different a go and wants to try something out. So that's what I've always looked for. Yeah, that, uh, that's an interesting point. And um, so you're trying these little things on the side, sort of solve prop again, exploring your mm-hmm. curiosity, again, running, I guess, little experiments to see mm-hmm. what takes off. And then this tech platform takes mm-hmm. off. Um, and then what made you decide to go all in on that? Was it just that it had momentum? And, and did, how did you make that decision yep. to, to jump in? Yep, yep. Good question. So... You sort of hear a lot about people in corporate world going, you know, am I going to try this thing? Am I going to jump out of my day-to-day job? And I was in consulting at pretty much the most senior level, getting paid very, very well for what I was doing. So, and with a family, a wife, two kids, etc., mortgage, the whole kit and caboodle, really. So, why would I take that step and jump out? It was mainly that I could actually see that we had a potential client and we could actually run with it. And at the time, that was absolutely RMIT University in Melbourne. Mm. And that meant that I could jump out reliably, that I could have some sort of income stream at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that I guess I wasn't afraid to give it a go because I knew I could probably pick up other work if I really wanted it. Other consulting work or doing a lot of workshop facilitation, those sorts of things I could easily pick up. So I sort of knew that I would be okay Mm. in a way, but I'm also probably ridiculously optimistic about (laughs) most things. If you ask my wife, she'll probably say way too optimistic (laughs) about most things. And she's probably a little bit more on the other side. So together it works. Yeah. But 
yeah, I think that's what makes you think, okay, I can jump out and I can give it a go. But it was having an anchor. It's always an anchor in my experience that means that something's going to run with. Even if we, for example, at Curio think of a new product or a new business line or a new service, it's great to go and play around the edges. But unless you've got someone who can actually anchor it and pay for it, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I would imagine your neuroscience training makes you painfully aware of stated preferences versus mm-hmm. revealed preferences yeah. and people saying they want to buy something versus uh, yeah. actually buying it. Oh, yeah, we've all had that. <laughs> and, and like I said, once you have that anchor of a paying customer, not people in market research or, or liking yeah. um, the idea, but then that gives you the confidence that there's something real behind it. Mm-hmm. And so once you made that leap, what was the first 12 months like? Mm. Hell. <laughs> It really so it was interesting in some ways and an absolute nightmare in others. So the this time, if I think about it, sort of this time, actually probably the start of 2018 was a real struggle, but that was probably around about a year roughly in because we effectively had myself and I'd got it going. Then a couple of months in, I found two other people who were willing mm-hmm. to effectively work for equity. Mm-hmm. So they jumped in as well, um, Daniel and Amar, and they then started getting involved. They were doing a day or two a week while they were also holding down their day jobs as well. Mm-hmm. And slowly but surely, we sort of were adding people, but we knew that we needed to invest more in the platform. And so that's when we actually decided to do the usual sort of friend, family and fools funding round and go out there and see who we could actually bring in to help us take that next step. Mm -hmm. Because we knew that we needed a few developers as well and probably some UX people, UI folks, who could help us take it to that next step of the platform. And so we went out to market, we raised a couple of hundred grand that we could actually do something with, Mm -hmm. took on some investors, which is always an interesting experience. and got moving on that. And so the first year was really about pulling in people and trying to scale it really quickly to get to the point where we could have a product that we could take to the next level. And we knew we had one client who was very interested in working with us and taking it even further, but at the same time was only one client. Mm. And there was only so much that they could do. And so we very rapidly burnt through the investors' money Mm -hmm. extremely quickly, I would say. Probably took us about six to eight months, I think, Mm -hmm. to burn through it. And then everything went really quiet. We had to let go of the developers and the UX people and some of the graphic designers, et cetera, and basically shrunk back down again and went, have we really got a product here? Have we actually got a service here as well? And at the same time, I was trying to do a lot more um, consulting work in education and strategy-type work. So I was still doing that to make sure that I had an income Mm -hmm. at the same time as keeping this platform sort of alive, the sessions platform alive and going. So we had that peak of taking on money, hiring people, letting them go again, dropping it off again, and then really just trying to find how do we actually fit into this marketplace. And that's where we were around about a year and a half ago going, what are we actually doing? Where are we going with this thing? How can we actually scale it? What are we meant to be doing, etc.? And I think I probably had a little bit of a crisis of confidence around about then because mm-hmm. I just went, you know, why are we doing this in reality? I could just be doing what I'm doing right now, which is really just sole trader management consulting mm-hmm. type work and not have all of the headache of Furio <laughs> and staff investors and investors and, and all of these yeah, sorts yeah. of things. And you go, well, yeah. why am I doing this yeah. craziness sort of a thing? But... We then worked out that really what people were looking for out of the sessions business, which was this sort of casual academic marketplace, is actually what they wanted was someone to take away the pain of moving into the online delivery space. Mm -hmm. And we went, okay, maybe that's where we need to be is really in this emerging field of 
online education. And by that, I don't mean what people refer to as these massive online courses, so MOOCs, um, which is offered for free and you have, you know, 10,000 people who do the first three weeks and never finish the full 12. Like the Udemy's and Khan yeah, and big names. Yeah, sort exactly. Of, yeah, one to many yeah. free stuff. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Doing the sort of free courses, that mm-hmm. wasn't what we are interested in, but working with education providers, corporates, universities, etc. How can we help them go online and make them do it really fast and scale them really quickly. Mm. And so that's what we actually started pivoting the business towards. And so from around about the start of 2018 through to probably around about August, we slimmed right down to around about four full-time staff and some contractors and casual people helping us around the edges. Mm -hmm. Um, Slimmed the company right down, pivoted ourselves around to going, okay, we're going to be targeting the online learning space, what I refer to as the art, science and business of learning. We pivot the entire organization that way and then off we went. And pretty much since probably this current financial year, so probably since around about August 2018, we're probably growing and close to probably almost probably doubling every six months at the moment in terms of the work we're doing. And it's really just about finding that product market fit. Mm. reality the classic entrepreneur (laughs) thing of going well we've got this we've got these human capital model and the sessions platform you know what is it that universities actually need they need someone to just take it away and make it happen for them and make them move really really quickly in a partnership structure Mm. and so that's what we did so we have partnerships with several universities now where we Um, design their online learning we do a lot of the market research for them we design the learning we build it in a learning management system or we host it ourselves for them Um, and then we actually can even deliver it on their behalf if they want us to all under their branding almost like a white label service Mm. if you want to call it that and that's the part that's absolutely gone like gangbusters probably over the last six months and meant that we're scaling even faster than we were when we were listed in most recently in the AFR Fast Starters mm. list. So I'd be interested to see where we place in the next next round, I think, later this year. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very interesting story of, again, getting some momentum with your uh, sort of initial client, growing, getting some funding, which, again, yep. gives sort of fuel onto, uh, you know, fuel onto the fire and then sort of having that pivot. And was it that the product wasn't ready to scale out to more universities, the original mm-hmm. product, or was it that it the universities weren't sort of buying, but yeah. the product was ready. Yeah, absolutely, the latter. Okay. So it was solving a problem that we thought that they had and what I'd seen from consulting with a lot of them, mm-hmm. but it wasn't made in a way that they could plug straight into it and make it happen straight away. And what they actually, when we worked it out and started feeling around the space to see what things did they actually need, that's what we came across, yeah. What they actually needed was delivery. And how do they move into online really, really quickly? And so that's how we've basically targeted it. Yeah. So they still had the staffing issues or was staffing all these casuals and managing all these, that was not a big enough issue for them basically to need a dedicated big platform. enough issue. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. But also there are these massive HR information systems that mm. these large organisations have. Well, you have to remember most universities, if they were listed companies, would be in like the top ASX companies. Oh, yeah, multi-billion they dollar huge institutions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're massive institutions with massive budgets and income mm. and staff and students and all that sort of thing. So they're complex beasts. And then you come along with this product that you say, we can bolt this on the side of you to try and make this little bit of what you're doing easier. And they're like, 
we've got way bigger problems than <laughs> that to be dealing with right now. And mm. in fact, we can sort of find most of the staff that we need from our PhD students, etc. Mm. So what we actually need is someone to just basically run the whole thing and plug into this side of us mm. is probably where the actual issue was. And I think it's just a classic thing of just trying things out until you hit, okay, that's what they mm. might actually need. And you've got to keep pivoting until you actually get to that point where you find the thing that you can actually work with them on. Mm. I think it's the same for many startups, really, and particularly around the education sector. And I do a little bit of work with EduGrowth, who are like the sort of, I guess, becoming the peak body of education startups. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the same thing all the time. There's these organisations who are really trying to find how their product can fit to the to the market. And so you've just got to keep trying. Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously, after a bit of trial and error, you're able to hit onto something and you grew 276% last financial year mm -hmm. and doing over 2.33 million in revenue, making you one of the fastest growing new companies in Australia. So was almost all this revenue growth on the platform or were you also selling this consulting and advisory That's type services? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So this is, I guess, the most interesting part of it. So the Sessions platform itself... Mm -hmm doesn't actually charge anyone anything. So it's now offered because we decided that it was easier to offer it for free mm -hmm. and have it as a, almost a freemium model that we actually use because we use it to find people. Mm. And our business is increasingly about people and how we find the right people, work with them in the right way in projects or in delivery or whatever it happens to be for a particular client. And so that's where we actually get the value out of it so we offer it completely and utterly to universities at the moment for nothing for free mm. so it in itself actually generates zero revenue hilariously so the revenue that's actually coming through there the two and a half mil or whatever it mm. happens to be i can't remember um is coming through a mixture of education delivery work so where we deliver education programs for others designing new programs for them mm -hmm. um, as well. Market research work on education and the consulting work is where it all comes through now. Okay, interesting. So it's sort of a, it's a, a lead generator in a sense yeah, and well, also I guess is, a secret yeah. source to bundle in with you're not just selling people and advice, you've got this tool yeah, that works yeah. with it. Yeah, and, and look, we couldn't do what we mm. do without it. Yeah. We absolutely couldn't do it without the, that network of 15,000 academics mm. and trainers on that platform. Because it's core to our business. But it also means now when I actually talk about how we actually use it, I say, look, it's something that we need internally that we've basically commercialized and other people can use it if they so desire, which is almost like retelling the story in some ways and spinning it. But the reality of right now is that's how it works. Yeah. And did you, so, so that's the, again, the unique proprietary thing. And is that something that you're still building because sort of the better it gets, the, the more value it adds? Or is it more about scaling up the, the people and the range of services and the tools already kind of? Yeah, where I think it's, it's probably to? going to be the latter. I don't think because we've had so much going on with such a small staffing cohort, we haven't put the time and effort in thinking into the sessions platform, I would say, for the last six months. And so last week we actually held our own internal workshop to actually think about where is it going, what it's doing. And I think it's the, the classic thing of the strategy consultant, which is what I am, without a strategy, <laughs> hilariously. Um, and so we actually went, okay, let's turn this actually into like almost a proper client project and mm. let's think really about it from scratch about is it delivering what we need, what others need, what things should we be doing better, as an example. So, for example, some things that we could be doing better are 
you know, making sure we're really engaging with the educators that are on the platform at the moment because we're not doing as much of that. Um, how do we also encourage other institutions to use it? Because like all two-sided marketplaces, you mm-hmm. need to have both going yeah. in order yeah. for it to actually be interesting and keep the whole cycle running with it. Um, and then which markets do we actually go into? So it's currently in Australia. It launched in the US last year purely because one of our directors was moving to the US. So we thought, well, someone's going to be there. Let's <laughs> give it a go. And because it costs us you know, effectively nothing mm. to launch into a new market because all it is is changing literally the front page mm. and maybe some of the IP registration so that it brings up something different when you come from the US or if you came from the UK mm. or whatever. We just thought, yeah, let's give it a go. It's sort of a suck it and see type thing. Um, and have given that a go, but no one's been watching it. And so it's got to that point where you're like, you know what, this thing that we've got running over there, we probably now need to get someone in there actually managing it and mm. thinking about it and scaling it. And probably a classic product manager, I think, is actually what's required. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and so how, so we talked about, you said it was hell, obviously, when you started and we're stuck in this kind of half tech, half consulting, mm. kind of, I, I guess, uh, that valley mm. where you're trying to find the product market fit. How did that compare to the rapid success and growth and, and the sort of the good and bad of finding mm-hmm. the fit, getting the staff, getting the clients, mm-hmm. but then obviously delivering on the work and, and handling the growth challenges versus the sort of lack of product market fit challenge? What was that growth period like? Yeah, so that's probably been what's been going on even more recently. Um, where after we've pivoted more towards this online learning and delivery model aspect, it's become quite the challenge because we have a lot more work coming in the front door than we can actually deliver at the moment. And so we're very much straining at the seams in that respect. And as much as we sound like, you know, we've got 55 staff at the moment and probably in about a month's time, we'll be getting closer to 70, I think. Mm. Um, It's trying to find the right people. That's what's important. Yeah, so you've got the um, the problems of, uh, where you were in that valley, where you had left the job, mm-hmm. things were hard, taking investors kind of stuck between tech and a service business, and we discussed the hell and the pain with that. What was mm-hmm. the, the good and bad of the success, mm-hmm. the growth, scaling up, having more work than you can handle, having to deliver on all that work? What was the, the mm-hmm. good and bad of the growth yep. phase? Yeah, absolutely. So the good part is that you have income coming in, absolutely the best part of it so income's coming in because the biggest thing is i guess a founder ceo and someone who still owns a good 80 percent of the company in me is payroll Mm. monthly payroll it's like the stress part of the whole thing and it's cash is king as they Mm. say it's the whole cash flow model type thing so having income coming in the door and knowing that you can absolutely pay the full-time staff (laughs) or the (laughs) part-time ongoing staff for one thing is a great Mm almost a weight off your mind to think about that that you can pay yourself is also a really good yeah. part of it um and all of the other staff and contractors etc the painful absolutely painful part is getting the right people in the door and getting them in quick enough settled inducted and going and everyone i talk to keeps saying when you hit the that sort of scale button it's the nailing the systems the processes and the people every single time is what really comes into it so having the right systems in place so that things and everyone knows how everything works in terms of processes and as a startup processes and policies are almost like antithetical you want to avoid (laughs) them as much as possible and now it's like this crazy thing going on where we're trying to develop policies and on everything so that Mm. everyone that they come in the door goes 
okay, if we have to travel for work, this is what it looks like, mm. even the most basic things. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. As ridiculous as it sounds, and you sort of go, why are we doing all these things that just create overhead? Why are we doing all this stuff? But you start realising, actually, that's what makes everyone else's lives easier if they don't have to say, David, what's the travel thing? Do we fly with Virgin or Qantas or can we use taxis or Uber? How does it all work? Even the basic sort of stuff like that. So processes, but then the right people coming in the front door. And that's the thing that I'm probably probably the most hard on in mm-hmm. some respects because I insist on meeting every single person that we decide to hire. Um, one, I think I want to know, you know, the proverbial, they don't have two heads type thing. <laughs> um, you don't want to work with idiots mm-hmm. pretty much is the other part of it. So we really don't want any idiots and assholes in the organization. If we can possibly avoid <laughs> it as much as possible, see that people can work together and that they'll be able to plug in mm-hmm. together, but also that they have the capability that you're actually looking for, that they've got that almost, I would refer to it, as a growth mindset, like they're mm-hmm. really in there and thinking, yeah, I really want to grow with this organization and help it go somewhere. Because if they haven't got that, it's an absolute disaster. We've had some people who've come into the organization where it really hasn't worked in that respect. And it's great hiring people, but it's way worse firing them and saying, you know what, this isn't for you or this organization is for you or, you know what, you're just not fitting into the way that we want to go with the organization is even harder we've had to do both of those things. And, and with some of that, you know, maybe they were hired for where the company was, but then it grew past them and they weren't personally growing? And what were some yeah, of the other question. issues you ran into yeah. with the wrong hires? I think that's a really good question. I think that it's probably a mix of all of those things. It is a mix of they were the right person at the right time because mm-hmm. they had the ability to sort of do multiple different things. But then as you scale up and you have to effectively get people who become specialists in areas, you start going, well, actually, I don't need someone who can give a go at everything from financial management to, you know, HR or whatever Mm. it happens to be, or in our case, um, something around managing staff and doing online learning design. Mm. What we'd actually need is someone who's got really good depth in learning design or really good depth in, um, you know, user interface design or whatever it Mm. happens to be. And so you start sort of moving from the broad people to the deep people. Mm. And some people can absolutely come on that journey and they'll develop that depth aspect as they go. And that's what they're looking for. Others are like, yeah, that's not really where I want to be going. Other people are like, you know what? I don't want to work those crazy hours that you're all working when everything's going nuts. They just don't have that sort of growth mindset resilience Mm. part of themselves. It's just not what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you've got to find, yeah, the right, the right person. And I still think it's a struggle. I think it's the biggest issue that we have. And to be honest, we probably always will have. And I think any entrepreneur who gets to that point of hitting the sort of proverbial scale button, Mm. it's all about the people that then start coming in the door to actually make the thing happen. Because I can't follow them every day anymore. Mm. I can't say to the, you know, the seven people around me, all right, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Okay. Yeah. I can help you with that. Or I can unclog that with 50 plus people. I can't do that. Mm. anymore and so making sure that others around you have in maybe in their mind go what would david do in this or what it you know how would it actually happen is maybe the way it goes i don't know i'm still learning and then i was reading recently no, i listened to another podcast actually uh where they were talking about um the way steve jobs would try to bring people into apple and the guy was an absolute narcissist and a prick mm. but 
you know what, he did what he did. But when you start looking at some of the, the practices that he had, particularly with people in his senior team, like the ones who were close around him, the way that he talked about it and thought about it was, I want you to effectively work with me and be really close to me so that in three months' time, you know exactly what I'm going to be thinking when something comes up so I don't have to be in there telling you what to do. And I can almost see the value in that now. I can see the value in saying, and we've got some new people who started in, in Sydney this week and I was there yesterday with them. And I'm like, what I need to get you to the point of is that you don't need to on Slack say to me, David, what do you think about this? You just know what I'm going to be thinking about it and you just do it. And that's what we want to try and get the organization to. Yeah, so scaling your thought process, your decision-making, again, so that you can talk to five executives or managers who then scale that to their teams of 10 or 15 versus, again, once you get past 10, 15 people, you can't personally touch all those. You're touching the layer above them and they have to be able to to relay that message or guidance down without you being there. Yeah, but it's almost like what is culture in that respect. Yeah, yeah. So, And it almost does need to become that collect collection of values that people are just going to do what they think they're going to do automatically without really realizing it. They're all aligned into the similar type of direction, but in an organization where I really want people to be creative and curious, you are going to get people who aren't going to be like that. And that's probably the part that's actually even more fun in some respects. Like they're going to poke and prod us and go, you know what? I don't agree with us going in that way. And I'm going to tell you, I don't agree with you. And after being in a university, you get sort of used to that because everyone disagrees on everything <laughs> in a university. That's just like a village. Yeah. <laughs> How do you get everyone trying to go in a similar direction? And to have an organization like that, I think is what will make it fun. Cause it means that we are going to try out different things all the time. We're going to be launching new businesses, new platforms mm. is the plan as we, we go ahead and we've already got a few in the pipeline Another one's just been launched. And that's where we hope to be able to, to scale it. Mm. Yeah, and so you mentioned obviously that the challenges with getting the right people because it's a unique sort of company and a unique mm. type of person. And one thing you mentioned was having people who have sort of dipped their toe in multiple things mm. like yourself and who then can use their creativity and intelligence to kind of mm. see connections that people who only are, are again, a deep specialist in one field wouldn't exactly. see. Yep. So a key thing, I guess, is sort of someone, again, multi exposed or multi-talented maybe um what other and and like you said obviously a nice person who's smart Mm. and hardworking and and willing to grow are there any other things Mm. that are a definite plus for hiring or a definite Mm. kind of no that filters people Mm. out i think our challenge and it's probably the same in most organizations that that sort of tech bent Mm -hmm. is trying to get diversity in the workforce and diversity in various aspects from not just gender, but also background, cultural background, sexuality, the whole thing, and trying to get that diversity outside of, you know, classic white main. And that's probably our challenge at the moment. And it's something that we're always talking about and thinking about because I don't think we have enough diversity in the organisation at the moment. And as much as we do a lot of work with organisations who are probably a lot more diverse than us, I think we've got a long way to, to go on it. So from a People perspective, that's the part that sort of gets me going at the moment. The main sort of goal and focus moving forward. Okay. Yeah, getting the right people, but trying to continually have in the back of your mind that you need to be thinking about how do we diversify this organization as well and get different viewpoints. Because the reality, Mm. if we're building, hosting, delivering, et cetera, learning for corporates, universities, or whoever it happens to be in government, 
the nature of them is that they are adverse organisations and we're not going to know what they want or what they need or how they learn or anything like that if all we are is a bunch of white guys sitting in you know, an office in a co-working space with a table tennis table next door to us. So we have to have that diversity aspect of it and that's why I think we've got so much further to go. In sort of the diversity of thought processes and background and experience well, that's and where mindset. You get from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. People who have got different backgrounds to to my relatively privileged existence are the ones that we want to try and bring in the door as quickly as we possibly can. And we work with a lot of um, that's a lot. We've worked with three indigenous organizations over <laughs> the last year to basically try and start pushing ourselves into that particular space as well and get us thinking about those organisations and how do they hire people as part of our reconciliation action plan? How do we bring in those different types of talent, those different people? How do we even attract them to come and work in our organisation and be a part of what we're doing? If what they, you know, see at the front door is something completely different, almost the antithesis to who they are. And so have you been able to have any success with that so far? I think we're getting there. I think we're starting to get there. It's a slow process, but we are getting there. It takes time. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, you work a lot, obviously, with universities and you're an entrepreneur yourself. And you've probably noticed that a lot of universities are starting to run mm-hmm. degrees, diplomas, yep. masters in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. as a subject. Yeah. Um, what's your sort of take on that? I mean, a lot of people would say if you want to learn about starting a business, you can start a business because there's no real requirements or licenses you just sort of register an ABN and and sort of succeed or don't (laughs) succeed Um, so so what's your sort of thoughts on this trend and and what role do you see universities having in creating more effective entrepreneurs so where does entrepreneurship come from and that's why I think it comes from people who have ideas and they want to try them out and they probably have the ideas because they are a little bit creative they are a little Mm. bit curious about things and how they work and They want to learn about lots of different stuff and that's how they come up with whatever their concept or idea or whatever it is that they're they're trying to do. So you've got to have those aspects of them in the person. Um, I think there is absolutely the need for better business now, if you want to call it that, um, of how to run an organisation because I see it all the time, people who jump into the sort of the entrepreneurial space. They want to start something and do something or they've got an idea for something, but they really have no idea actually about how do you run a company? Mm. How do you run an organization and all of those sorts of things? I think there's a place for entrepreneurship education, if you want to call it that. Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure actually it's in the universities though. Mm. And actually, if you think about what's sort of the way that I'm structuring what I'm talking about, If you're going to get the people who are creative and curious, it happens in schools. It actually doesn't happen in universities. In fact, we probably beat it out of them in universities (laughs) if we possibly can as academics. So what things can we do that change the way that we do that sort of stuff? Because if you go, for example, to, and I was recently in the Middle East visiting some international schools for work, and you go into some of these big, you know, for-profit schools, which are really interesting because in Australia, we really don't have for-profit education. Mm. We have a lot of not-for-profits and church-run and religious-based, etc. We don't have this big for-profit sector. But you go into the primary schools and they're the most what you would refer to as environmentally enriched experiences. And the kids are doing all sorts of creative stuff. The walls have got everything hanging on them. There's stimulation coming from all parts. And then you walk into literally the first year of secondary school into, say, a science lab where you would expect to see all sorts of things. And it's the most sterile environment you can possibly imagine. It's just like almost white walls, just plain white desks, nothing around it. 
So what happens that we go from that amazing creative and curious environment in primary schools to putting them into secondary schools and we basically remove all of that sort of stuff and then we still expect people to be coming out the other side and thinking of what's going to be the next new bright idea, etc. So I think there's some role for primary, for secondary schools, absolutely. So in thinking of how do we encourage that sort of mindset and the school that my kids are at, which is Cary based here in Melbourne, have a change makers program, which is all about that. And it kicks in in year eight and starts talking to them about design thinking and creativity and how do you think up new business ideas and all mm. those sorts of things. Absolutely. It's doing that and be good to see if other schools can start really pushing some of that aspect through. I think in universities where they can be doing is they can create the opportunities for people to be able to do that sort of stuff. Even if it is some sort of accredited subject where as an undergrad student, you could do something that is creating your own thing if that's what you're interested in in doing or whatever it happens to be, but also making sure people have some basic understanding of what a business is and how a business works. In reality, it's just economics in some cases. And so I do think that there is value for that sort of entrepreneurship education. Absolutely. Where it sits, Mm -hmm. I don't completely know. Is there value in a master's of entrepreneurship? In some cases, for some people, there absolutely is if it's really practical because they've got the idea, et cetera, but they don't know how do they take it to that next level. So there must be some sort of value for it. Do I personally want to do something like that? No, no interest. <laughs> what, what about as an entrepreneur and as an employer, mm-hmm. would you or do you do any like sort of internship programs where you take someone who's at university studying, you know, maybe they're doing accounting or, yep. you know, management or even a engineering, yep. but they want to learn about entrepreneurship and you say, you know, we have an internship program or, you know, you kind of apprentice, you work in the business under an entrepreneur in a fast growing environment and sort of learn it that way. Is yep. that something you do? Yep, we do. So we have at any one time three interns mm-hmm. um, in the company just because of most of our people are in Melbourne. That's where they tend to be. But our Sydney office seems to be really getting some traction at the moment. So they'll probably start being there at the moment. Um, we try to usually run three at the same time if we possibly can. So the one that I'm really interested in, it's probably because of my background, Mm -hmm. is a PhD internship program. So it's targeted at people who are in their final year of their PhD. So they're probably in the write-up stage of their research. And the idea is to give them exposure to a different way of thinking and a different viewpoint, mostly around most likely like consulting type work. Mm -hmm. So advising clients, um, but getting them some, you know, an in inverted commas, real world experience of what it is. <laughs> yeah. And often we try and go for the people who have tried out a whole bunch of different things and are interested in that more entrepreneurial mindset or giving something new a go. Um, the other two are usually, uh, one is usually another post-grad student, often from a business type of context. So we've got one at the moment from marketing type of background, working with us and thinking about how do we market a product or a new platform that we're building at the moment. Um, and some of the communications around that. And then usually the third one is someone from an unrelated, usually undergraduate discipline area of some sort. So the last one we had was from philosophy, which mm-hmm. is quite interesting. So coming at things from a very different mindset. And we always go for people who are interested in new ideas, trying out something new and want to learn about something new. We did trial about a year ago having... Um, Others who have already got an idea or something that they could come and work within us and work with us. We tried it once. It actually didn't go too badly. But then because the day-to-day business sort of pivoted and turned around and we became so ridiculously busy, I didn't have the time Mm. to really engage with it. But we were hoping to do that again soon and effectively bring 
um, sort of little smaller startups, maybe one or two people, like probably a co-founders, mm-hmm. and get them to work underneath us and with them. And most likely it'll be in the education type space because then we can make sure that they get the right introductions, et cetera, to the right types of organizations. We don't plan to take any equity in it or anything like that. We might potentially, if they wanted us to invest, but we wouldn't be taking equity for advice. I just don't agree with it. Yeah, so it's sort of like a mentoring, incubation, yeah. business inside a business type of model. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so in a, I guess in a small scale, you're already kind of teaching entrepreneurship in that way, in, in getting people close to the flame and sort of experiencing it, yep. putting um, interns through it. And, and what's the feedback of the interns, like mm-hmm. some that have maybe been in higher ed for a decade yep. or, or close to it, mm-hmm. if they've done one or two undergrad, a master's, a PhD, mm-hmm. how do they sort of transition into the business world when a lot of their peers are probably heading back into the academic mm-hmm. world? Yeah. Uh, most of them are using it as a stepping stone to for our business going into other larger consulting firms because mm-hmm. that's usually where they want to go with it. Um, so the two, three PhDs we've had through in the last year, I think they've all gone down that particular Path, not necessarily with us, mm-hmm. but with other bigger firms, which makes complete sense because they'll provide them the training that they're going to need to really go somewhere with it. Um, so I think the internship sort of approach can work, but at the same time, it is challenging to give them the amount of time that you think you want to be able to give them. Um, I think that's probably the harder part of it. We haven't had any that have gone and created their own businesses Mm -hmm. as yet. So it'd be interesting to see where that goes, but we have had them work in other startups Mm. as well. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see how we go. It's early days. Yeah, nice. And again, working in as an entrepreneur and and doing, being in that space, what trends do you see Mm. in sort of Australian entrepreneurship? And you mentioned obviously you're in the US, you've been in the Middle East, so you're traveling around what is Australia doing well as a country for entrepreneurship and new business? And, and what is it sort of maybe lagging versus other countries? Yeah, look, we haven't got the right government levers in place at the moment, unfortunately, on a whole bunch of different levels, whether it's from, you know, share option schemes to getting investment, etc. That's sort of for the financial aspects and mm-hmm. investment aspects of it. The right levers aren't in place from government at the moment, almost. They're not discouraging, but they're not either encouraging either. Um, So I think there's that part of it. I don't think the government either is really thinking about how we better create that ecosystem. I think when when Malcolm Turnbull was in there at the start, there was a whole bunch of interest and excitement. It all sounded really interesting and sexy and people going, wow, we're going to change these sorts of things. Mm. And that pretty much died off pretty quickly. So I think there's a lot of way to go there. I think a lot of the universities and through their creating incubators as well will probably help things Along, It does seem like that everyone's got an incubator these days um, from a university mm. perspective. It's the thing to do. What I've seen go particularly pear-shaped <laughs> has been corporate incubators. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of the banks have been trying to play with it, but they haven't quite got the right incentives in place to really make it happen. And I think you could sort of see why in some respects. Like if you're in a – and I've done some work for some of them, but um, – in a large bank, for example, and you're trying to create a new product within the organization and, you know, you run out of money for the project, it's like, can I have another million dollars, please? They go, yeah, okay, you have another million. Whereas if you're in your own startup land, you can't just go, can I have another million dollars? Because <laughs> everyone just looks at you, uh, no, because there's no real skin in the game. Because mm. they don't often, they don't take equity in the venture. It's almost just like their day-to-day job. And so I think in many cases, that's why these corporate incubators just haven't really been that successful because they haven't got the right people in place. Um, 
So I think that's sort of aspects of it. I think there is a lot more money going around these days for people to be investing in startups that are at the right place. Mm -hmm. But I think unfortunately still in Australia, people do expect a startup to be further along the chain or the sort of timeline before they will actually put in money. Whereas often in the sort of US, Israel, et cetera, they're usually more interested in putting money in very early on. Mm. So in Australia, you need to be a little bit further along the pathway before you'll get it. Um, but there's, look, I think there's way to go on most of these things. I think it's absolutely the way of the future and people will keep trying to do it and innovate on different business models mm. or different approaches, different platforms, etc. And I think we're in sort of a country that's far enough away to want to give these sorts of things a go. So I'm hoping it keeps continuing. Mm. Yeah, no, some very good points there. And what advice, again, you've done a range of different things, obviously experienced a lot of different areas. So what advice would you give, you know, an 18 or 20 year old version of yourself mm -hmm. about maybe work and business and things like that, looking back after the journey you've been on? Yeah, try out everything. Be open to new ideas. Give something a go if you think it's going to go um, somewhere. And particularly if it was an 18-year-old and they're probably, you know, this year at the moment, they're probably going, oh my God, you know, I've got to finish my whatever it is, HSC, BCE, mm -hmm. whatever they happen to be doing, depending on where they are, final year of school. Mm -hmm. They're probably ridiculously stressed out about it, etc. And sadly, um, what they probably don't realise is actually after... One year, it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, so take advantage of all the opportunities that are out there and try different things out. Volunteer for, you know, NGOs and not-for-profits. Mm -hmm. Understand how different businesses work and see the world. See what actually things that people are doing because it's getting all of those different inputs that actually means that you'll think up what that new thing is or that different way of approaching something or that different business model, whatever it happens to be. And you're only going to get it through exposing yourself to lots of different stuff and seeing how different things work. That's mm. my opinion anyway. <laughs> yeah, because well, otherwise you just lack the source material and the references and the inputs it. to yeah. create an output if you've yeah. only got one, you know, experience. Exactly right. If you sort of, you know, go through and do a Bachelor of Business or Bachelor of Commerce and then go straight into working with one of the big banks or the mm. big accounting firms... You're not going to get a whole lot of life experience and see what different people and different organisations mm. think or approach or do. And I think increasingly, though, even those big organisations now are going, well, what has this person done during their undergrad degree or what could they be doing differently or did they try out student politics or running mm. a club or, you know, trying to organise some sort of an event or an activity or have they travelled quite a bit? Have they been self-sufficient? Mm. All of those sorts of skills that I think you pick up in those early years through trying lots of different stuff. So keeping options open is my thing, which is probably my life mantra in some respects. Yeah, very nice. And again, you've changed the business, obviously, as all new businesses do quite often, trying mm. to find the right resonance. Um, but in a big picture sense, where do you see the next five to 10 years of Curio mm. heading? Ooh. As uh, one of my mentors at Cambridge University had two sayings, uh, one was ideas are cheap, which I always thought was interesting because he was always about it's how you implement them and mm. make something happen out of them because everyone's had the idea. Even someone said, you know, many times to me, oh, I thought about building that platform for casual <laughs> academics, but yeah, I never really got around to doing it. I'm like, that's exactly right. So you may come up with a new idea. And we most likely will over the next few years. But the reality is if we don't move to implementation, it's 
absolutely nothing <laughs> in yeah. that respect. Um, the other thing he used to always say to me was um, futurists and fools are seldom parted. <laughs> and so trying to predict the future and where things are going has never been my thing, even as a strategy consultant. Mm-hmm. I think as an organisation for Curio, we are absolutely positioning ourselves under this, I guess, vision of being in the art, science and business of learning. And we see everything of being around about learning and how do we improve the way people learn or how they learn is really what our organisation is absolutely about. And as companies increasingly move into understanding how they develop their staff, um, how universities teach students, how schools think about different, how the adolescent brain develops and how it takes on information and content and how it learns compared to, say, you know, the brain of a five to seven year old Mm -hmm. I think we're getting better at understanding all of those aspects of it and so that's why we want to be in that sort of space where it goes so working with organizations that help people learn learn better um, do things better potentially using their technology in the best way possible so that's where we want to go and where we've sort of I guess want to own that space Um, we want to own it absolutely in Australia because that's relatively easy to be honest it's a smaller (laughs) country and if you can't make it here then you're definitely not going to make it in an overseas market but then start thinking about how do we actually expand our offering as we go out and we are testing different markets as we go along to try and work out which one's the best fit for us Mm -hmm. but again it'll all be about what person can we find on the ground in that new market that's actually going to make it something that's where i think we're going nice all right and do you have any final thoughts or parting words you'd like to leave the audience with um, I think the, the idea and the, our mantra of being creative and curious is what drives success and the success further from that comes from putting in the effort and you've got to be willing to put the effort in if you really want to make these things and really turn them into something. And if you've got those three things going on, generally I find you're going to be pretty successful. If you haven't got one of them, things are going to be tough, particularly the effort one, because <laughs> it's a hard slog. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Derek. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404 689 897. Thank you.